Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be a quarterback in the NFL for 12 seasons? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 107 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Thursday, April 19, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show, usually on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later that night on iTunes on The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Oklahoma City Thunder are back in the playoffs with some different faces leading the way along with Russell Westbrook this time around, including Carmelo Anthony, who still has that same shooter-shoot mentality that he had early on in his career. But, as we remember, sometimes that mentality goes with him off the court. Let's flash back to around this time last year when rumors spread about just that. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Carmelo Anthony has never been able to live up to the high expectations set by fans of the Knicks. That is, to bring a championship back to New York. The sky was the limit when Melo entered the NBA fresh off of winning a national championship in his only year at Syracuse. After several seasons with the Denver Nuggets, Melo came home to New York and was welcomed with open arms. He was given the keys to the kingdom, and even when opportunity came to find another team, pledged his loyalty to New York and even instituted a no-trade clause to ensure he was in for the long haul. If only his wife had a no-trade clause for their marriage. He's a three-time Olympian, he's won the scoring title, and has been an all-star ten times. But with Melo at the forefront of the franchise, the Knicks have disappointed. 
having not made the playoffs since 2013. With James Dolan as owner and Phil Jackson as visitor, the Knicks have spent this past year in shambles. With Jackson closing the book on this season with his farewell press conference by saying that Melo should probably go play somewhere else. Just days after those statements, we found out that the shooter's shoot mentality that Melo implements on the court is also a quality he implements in the bedroom. It was reported by TMZ that Lala, Mello's wife of seven years, has separated from her husband and the couple was living separately. Reports then surfaced that Mello had impregnated a dancer of a gentleman's club in New York and that she was six and a half months along with baby Mello. Apparently, Mello has spent much of his career living the bachelor life, despite his marriage. A source told the New York Post, quote, Mello's tagline was, She's married, I'm not. That's how he would justify it, end quote. Reports have recently surfaced that Mello's one-night love affair is not a stripper from New York, but a woman from Chicago with a master's degree. Either way, Lala has had enough of Mello's escapades and should have no problem finding her footing in the city of stars. As for Mello, may the recent rumors and tabloids result in more cryptic social media messages. And one thing is for certain, when Phil Jackson grumbled for his team to learn the triangle, the triangle that Mello now finds himself the center of, couldn't have been quite what Phil had in mind. Hashtag stay M-E the number seven O. I'm John Lund. For sports news, red like real news. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. When we come back, we'll talk to a former NFL quarterback about his playing days and life after retirement. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who is your favorite backup quarterback and why? Now to this week's guest in Dan Orlovsky. He was a quarterback in the National Football League for 12 years before retiring before last season and can now be heard as a quarterback analyst or seen writing in The Athletic. Dan is sometimes unfortunately known for some of the negative things of his career instead of the positives, like being on the 0-16 Lions and running out of the end zone for a safety, two things that we'll talk about. But there's so much more to his career than just that, and this quickly turned into one of my most favorite interviews. We'll chat about when he knew he wanted to pursue football and his successful college career, the process of the NFL draft and transitioning into a backup quarterback, the importance of that position, what he does now, and his favorite quarterback in this year's draft. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He's at DanOrlovsky7. That's D-A-N-O-R-L-O-V-S-K-Y-7. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. 
We're here with Dan Orlovsky. He was a quarterback in the National Football League for 12 years, including seven with the Detroit Lions. Dan, thanks so much for coming on to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Appreciate you having me. No problem at all. I'm very thankful for your time. And it's probably interesting being close to just as busy doing what you're doing now as it was during your playing days. Before we get into that, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit with you. When did you know that you were good enough or felt like you were good enough to pursue football as your number one sport and as something that you wanted to do in college and beyond? Yeah, you know, quarterbacks, I mean, athletes in general are a little different. I think quarterbacks even more so with, with a, you know, there's a good ego that we have and, and obviously self-belief is a big deal. I was, it was pretty early on that I, I, I really wanted to, you know, play high school football and then play college football and, and always had dreams of, of playing in the NFL. I think NFL wise, when it became a reality for me, you know, like I said, I'd always believed, okay, I'm going to make it. You know, I was one of those, one of those kids that I was okay putting all my eggs in one basket, especially when it came to being an NFL player. But the reality set in probably sometime around my sophomore year of college, you know, we went on a little bit of a run on the back end of my season, played some better teams and I was playing pretty good started to get some, I guess, if you want to call it national attention. And that was when the moment, you know, hit me like, uh, okay, you know, maybe this is no longer just a, a big dream or a, a vision. And if I continue to work, it'll be a reality for me. You went 12-0 and and won the state championship with Shelton High School as a senior and only lost four games in high school in general and won awards like Connecticut All-State in your final year. I'm sure you were getting a lot of offers at that point from some notable programs. And to fill in some loose holes briefly for the listeners, you had committed to Michigan State, but they were already looking to have their next quarterback. The same thing happened with Purdue and some guy named Kyle Orton. So from there, why did you decide to stay in state and play for UConn? Yeah, you know, it was for me, the I guess the, the factor that I had looked overlooked throughout my recruiting process, but was always in my ear was the head coach, Randy Etzel. He was very straight forward and honest with me. He challenged me. He didn't sugarcoat anything. And then he just painted this vision of being a part of something that in reality, a lot of people thought was impossible. They thought we were crazy. They thought no shot that they can go and take UConn and be a, a respected national program football wise. And I think over the, the recruiting process, I just really fell in love with the same vision that he had. And I fell in love with the let's go do something that everyone thinks is crazy type mindset. And he was really the deciding factor. You know, I wanted to play early. I wanted to go try and be the big fish in the small pond type mentality. So all those variables factored in, but he was the really deciding, deciding factor for me to go, okay, I'm going to go play football at UConn. I know your father wasn't necessarily happy about that. Did you bust him as your career was going on and UConn was getting more and more success? Like, yeah, I, I made the right decision. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I threw that back a little bit. I think the biggest thing for me was, you know, I was fortunate where my dad, you know, taught me a lot of good stuff. And when I was going through that process and decided to go to UConn, I was really the message I was trying to get across to him was, if you think you did a good job raising me, then 
trust me that this is the right choice for me. It may not be the right choice for you or what you envisioned, you know, when we, you know, started football as a kid and whatnot, but this is the right choice for me. And you've got to trust that it's, I I'm, I'm smart enough and aware enough uh, to make the right one. And so, uh, but he, he was, he was made aware, you know, as the years went on that it was the right decision for sure. You're still one of the most prolific quarterbacks that UConn has ever had and still have records with passing yards and touchdown passes and most career completions. Aside from maybe even the X's and O's, is there something that you took away from your time at Connecticut that really helped you in becoming an NFL quarterback, whether that was on the field or even things that you took from it off the field? Oh, tons. You know, I I was really fortunate and blessed to have some good coaching. You know, I had two offensive coordinators, a guy named Norris Wilson, who's, you know, been a well-respected college coach at Rutgers and a couple other stops since our time at UConn together and Rob Ambrose as well as the head coach at Towson University outside of Maryland or outside of Baltimore. But, you know, I think that one of the greatest lessons or it was failure. You know, we, I failed a lot as a, as a freshman at UConn in the early part of my sophomore season, I failed as a, as a player individually and we failed as a team. And I think those hardships, you know, everyone always talks about hardships and how they reveal a lot about who you are and, what you can be and and your belief in yourself and what you can overcome. And I think those hardships were invaluable for me to go through, to, to understand what work truly was and commitment and sacrifice truly were and belief, you know, truly was, you know, I think those, those falling flat on my face type moments, the hate, hating, losing, getting sick and tired of being, you know, ordinary or, or average. I think, those experiences shaped me so much as a player and so much as a person, you know, we, I say this to people sometimes we worked so hard to go and turn UConn around or get them on the map. One, no one can take that away from us. And two, that gives you such a level of self-confidence because you did it. And it, it, it really permeates into a lot of areas of my life, you know, as, as a, as a person, as a, a dad, as a husband, you know, I have a lot of self-confidence for the, the things that we had to overcome during my time at UConn. The NFL draft is next week, and that's something that you've been talking about most recently about some of the quarterbacks that are expected to be drafted and something that you've gone through as a player. Back then, of course, it was just the two-day affair, but still something that's stressful, exciting, and an event to look forward to, whether as a player or as somebody watching from the sidelines as a fan. Can you take people through what that process is like briefly, at least how it was for you? Because I know at one point it actually got you to breaking your phone just because of yeah. some of the different things that happened in that process. Yeah, you know, the draft process truly is incredible. If you, if you go and look at it from just a 30,000-foot view vantage point and – you know, what you go through as a player and you're poked and prodded and pulled and judged, especially nowadays. And you, you sometimes you got to you could take a step back and go, wow, am I good at anything? You know, do I, I do, do I bring any value? And in a way, I think it's actually really good to go through because you quickly again learn out, learn a lot about yourself. And for me, when I went through mine, it was 
you know, I had Mel Kuyper bash me. Now I'll, you'll never play and you don't fit the NFL game. And you go through failures and you, there's self doubt that comes up. And then there's people telling you how good you are. And so you've got to navigate through all those different emotions and really settle into who you are. It's a really good growth process. And when I was heading into draft weekend, I didn't really want to make a huge deal of it, you know, cause I was a big believer of it's not where I start. It's where I finish. And I don't care if I'm a first round pick or the last round pick. No, I wanted to go as high as possible, obviously, but you know, we got, we, I didn't throw any crazy big party. I had friends around in my dorm room and, or my apartment at, at school. And I thought I would go somewhere in the second or third round, you know, going into my senior season, I was thought of as a first rounder by some people and whatnot, but I thought I'd go in the second or third round. So draft day comes. And like you had stated this, the first day was, you know, first, second and third round. So I got a call from the Seattle Seahawks around the third round. I said, Oh, this is my time. You're, you're in, in contact you. We, you're, you're on our short list with our next pick. All right, cool. You're not going to call me and tell me that if you're not going to take me right. Pick comes up. They take David Green from Georgia, the lefty quarterback, really, really good college player. So that was my first kind of kick to my gut. Like, man, I got my hopes up and, and shot down. And then as the night went on, the last pick of the draft came and it was the Broncos and they took Maurice Claret. And this is when Claret had some, some obvious baggage off the field and whatnot. And, and in that moment, I, I lost control of my emotions and I smashed my phone against the wall because I was looking at it going, wait, I'm this guy who does everything right and I work as hard as I can and you know, good player and all that stuff. And then Maurice Claret, who has proven, you know, and this is not a knock on Maurice Claret, but Maurice Claret's done some stuff off the field and whatnot. And how does he deserve this spot more than me? So I was really emotional for about an hour, woke up the next day using a buddy's phone, spoke with my agent. I'm in a bad mood. And he said, once Kyle Orton goes again, of course it goes back to Kyle Orton, but once Kyle Orton goes, you'll go. And so Kyle went pretty early in the fourth round. I ended up going earlier in the fifth round. And then my emotions flipped and you get this rush of, you know, 10, 12, 14 years of all the hard work and all the sacrifice and all the commitment hit you at once. And it's one of those moments where you go, everything I did was worth it. And, you know, it, it's such just an overwhelming feeling of joy uh, consumed by tears of, 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 of every emotion you can mix all together in one. And then for me, it was, okay, here I go. You know, let, let's start all over again. So I, I had the wave of emotions, man. You went from starting on Saturdays to then putting in the same preparation to have to be ready as a backup or maybe even a third string backup on Sundays. How did your mindset change with your new role in, in a sense, having to maybe not get as amped up for a game, knowing that you had to be ready when your time was called? What sort of things changed from you going from a starter to what your new role then became with the Detroit Lions when they took you in 2005? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think early on in my career, I was still very focused on trying to become a starter in the NFL. And every single decision I made fell under that umbrella. And as my years went on, and I don't know how quickly it happened for me, but as my years went on, the NFL kind of tells you who you are. You know, whether you believe it yourself or not, the NFL will tell you who you are. And so I, I quickly realized 
all right, well, there's 53 spots in football teams, and I want to play for a long time. So I want to make a career out of this. I've got to make sure that I'm figuring out ways to bring value to our organization on uh, doing things other than on Sundays. Because in the reality was no one wanted me to play. You want No one wants any backup to play. You want your starter to play well and play healthy. And so I had to f- figure out how to w- ways to bring value. And so my mindset had to change. Now, quarterbacks are leaders, so I still wanted to lead. It was just leading differently. It wasn't leading any less than I was maybe in my, my days at UConn, but I was leading differently. So everything had to switch from, hey, coach, look what I can do to let me show you what these other guys can do. So I had to be very selfless. Everything was about the team. I had to kind of rebrand myself with this guy brings value to our team with, you know, how he helps our starting quarterback, how he prepares our defense to go against the quarterback we're playing against this week, how he brings our young guys along, helps them study the offense, how he goes and works and prepares. We can count on him. You know, all those intangible things that you don't necessarily you can't touch them. I had to excel in them. And so that was difficult. It really was, especially in the NFL world where their, their window to make a career is small. But I, it was just obvious to me that, okay, I've got to bring value in, in, in ways other than performance or production. It's been an interesting evolution at the quarter pack position in the National Football League, especially in most recent years where when a team drafts a quarterback in the first round or in the top 10, they almost expect that quarterback, well, they do expect really that quarterback to be ready to start immediately. Fans have grown to expect that now, and we've seen it happen over the past several years with young guys in their first year getting thrown into the fire, sometimes maybe not as ready as you would like them to be, but that seems to be the nature of the beast, and I'm sure we'll see that again this year depending on when some teams take the quarterback and what they expect from them just because that position has become so important. But it's also been interesting to look at the other side of the coin and what's come from having a quarterback wait, in a sense. And the first one that comes to mind for a lot of people, as it should, is what Aaron Rodgers was able to do once he became the starter in place of Brett Favre. He did have time to sit on the sideline and learn from him for a couple seasons. And we've seen that in with a couple examples as well, where a quarterback doesn't start right away and he has that time to develop, whether it's one season or several. That also comes from the backup quarterback position. And it's something that you've done throughout your career, I'm sure, in in a sense mentoring young starters you did it with Matt Stafford you were doing it with Jared Goff with the Los Angeles Rams before your retirement how important is the backup quarterback for a role like that and what are some things that you try to do in that similar position to either mold who the starter was or to mold a younger quarterback on the team as well yeah I think I'm and I might be a little bit biased but I think the role of the backup is paramount I truly do Uh, I it's not, you know what? I don't think it is. I know it is. I, I've had conversations with starters and I've had conversations with coaches and I've made a career out of the importance of that role. And so it's, it's paramount to a starter's success. It, now it depends on who the starter is and whatnot. Some guys that are a little bit more established, maybe you can get away without having a guy that's seasoned and been around and understands. But there's a reason why playing quarterback is the hardest position in pro sports because it's hard and you need to surround your starting quarterback. Who's the most important person in your organization 
with as many assets as possible and many ways to help them play the 16 plus best games that they can. And the backup quarterback is one of those most important assets. And so, you know, for me, I was very focused on, you know, first of all, my relationship with the starter matters, mattered the most. That was the number one thing for my job because you as the starter are always going to get criticized and it's never going to be good enough. I don't care who you are. And I needed to make sure that that starter knew I always had your back. No matter what, I always got your back. And I needed for them to know that. I needed Matthew Stafford and Matt Schaub and Mike Glennon and Jared Goff. I needed those guys to know, listen, dude, no matter what, I got your back. And then as our relationship grew, you know, because a lot of backups in the NFL, they're, they're focused on them. And so when things turn south or the performance isn't what you want, that that's their window. So they go, they go get in guys ears. You know, if I was playing, we would have won, you know, and, and then they can get to a coach and say, you know, I, I, I feel like I can win us a couple games here, coach. But for me, I, I don't, no matter what that starter knew, I had his back. The second thing was I, I needed to make sure that he knew that when we were out in public, whether it was in a practice or a weight room setting, I was never going to challenge him ever. I was never going to question him. I was never going to challenge him because once I did, everyone else was going to. Now, once we get into our quarterback room and we're, it's just us, if I disagree with something and I want to be honest with him because I'll never, I'm not, I'm selling him short then. And so once we got into that quarterback room, Matthew knew I was going to, Hey Matthew, I didn't agree with that, dude. Like we got to talk about this. You know, I don't see it that way. Let's, let's chat about it. And that was a, a big deal for me. And then, you know, you, my mindset was everything I did had to fall in the umbrella of getting Matthew ready to play. Now I had other responsibilities and, and I was trying to help other guys play, but I was watching film. If Matthew, if you don't want to watch this tape, I, I got you. What do you want me to watch this week? Okay. Let's watch how Patrick Peterson plays fades down in the red zone. I got you. How do, how do they, how do they handle playing bigger receivers? I'll go watch. I'll go watch the Carolina Panthers play against Julio Jones to, to see how they're going to play against Calvin type stuff. All so all that, my mindset always was everything was, was – every decision was made under what helped Matthew get better, not for me or whoever my starter was. So, you know, those are things that, that comes over time, and it come, you got to earn that relationship and earn that trust from your starter. And, and that was something, you know, I was fortunate to do, and it was, you know, it was my greatest strength as well, and it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wanted to hit on a couple things that people probably most know you for if they were to Google your name, but take a different approach to them instead of the usual questions that you probably get asked for the one or two things that would be on that list. The first is, of course, unfortunately, being on the first team to go 0-16 in the National Football League with the Detroit Lions. And you've written about this with The Athletic, and I will attach those to my show notes because, unfortunately, the Browns did the same thing this past season, and you became part of that story in a sense where people would ask you what it's like to be on a team like that. The title was The Permanent Pain That Comes With Going 0-16, and, and it talks about you're not like the – 
undefeated Dolphins popping champagne when a team is going to not win a football game. It talked about how unfortunate and how bad and, and what that situation is like and how you wouldn't wish it upon anyone. But I'm interested to know throughout that season, once it was over, once the team had moved on, once you had moved on personally as a player, what you took from that year, maybe what you were able to do differently, maybe how you viewed how to prepare for a season. Was there anything that you learned from that 0-16 season, aside from, obviously, of course, we have to win a game? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that might be the season I learned the most in my whole career, maybe in my whole life, you know, because eventually football was going to end for me. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I played for 12 years in the NFL. I'm 34 years old. And so I've got a lot of life ahead of me. And, you know, what I realized was failure was inevitable. Now, we did it, obviously, at, a, at a, a grander scheme. No one wanted that, but failure was inevitable. And when failure hit, every one of us had the choice to either pick ourselves back up and go again or point fingers or blame other people or hide from it or run from it. And I think what that season taught me was failure is okay. Failure, failure is okay. At least we tried. It wasn't, it wasn't a fear thing. We failed. And I was able to continuously pull myself back up. And, you know, I played for another nine years after that season. That was important to me, that I wasn't going to let that define me. And, you know, moving forward in my life, I'm going to fail again. As a, as a husband, I'm going to fail. As, as a father, I'm going to fail at some point. As a, whatever I get into my next career, I'm going to fail. And I'm going to be able to look back on that and go, listen, I've, I've been down this road before. And I've proven to myself before that I'll pull myself back up and not let this define me. You know, I think one of the things also is you realize that you're more than just a football player. And you don't ever want to just be defined by that. You realize what it takes to you know, look people in the eye and handle things with integrity. You know, you learn how to handle confrontation. You learn how to keep your chin up. You know, a lot of things that you can take from bad, you can turn into good. And so, you know, that season in a lot of ways is an invaluable, you know, experience for me as a player for sure, but more so as a person. You were able to lead the Colts to two victories in a season where some thought that they would also go 0-16, the season that Peyton Manning missed because of his neck injury. But instead of focusing on that record, on what that season might have been like without him at the starting position, you mentioned during a show with Pat McAfee, a former teammate of yours, a great tale of how Peyton Manning took it to you in a sense in the film room. Can you share that story on this podcast as well about how you thought you would both be watching film together, but Peyton had other ideas? Yeah, you know, we were in a preseason, in a maybe our second or third preseason game. You know, when you travel to the hotels in the NFL, you're, you you kind of the hotel becomes your your safe place. And so if they, they set up little boardrooms that are essentially your portable meeting rooms that you would have at your facility. So knowing it was a preseason game, I was going to play a good amount. And so I really wanted to, you know, prepare. I was younger in my career and, and you know, kind of at that crossroads. Or are you going to play for four or five years? Are you going to play for 10, 12 years? So 
I really wanted to be prepared. So I'm down watching tape in our little quote unquote quarterback room, which is 20 feet by 20 feet, you know, 20 chairs in there type stuff and whatnot. So I'm on the laptop and I'm watching tape and I'm in the room by myself with taking notes and I get a knock on the door. So I turn around and it's Peyton and Peyton's like, what's up, Madan? And I'm like, what's up, Peyton? He's like, Hey man, uh, you mind if I watch some film? And I'm like, uh, yeah, bro. Come on. You're Peyton. I'm, I'm Dan. This is whatever you want. And so he walks in and sits down where I am and I gather my notebooks and my pens and, and I go sit in kind of the front row of chairs that are set up and I place my stuff down and kind of put my head down and start taking some notes. And he just kind of turns around, you know, quarter turns around, looks at me in the eye and he's like, alone. And I was like, oh, okay, I got you. Let me leave you alone. So I gathered my stuff. He turned around and I walked out of the room and that was that. And it was just one of those moments where, you know, Peyton kind of like, he said one word, but he said 15, you know, middle finger. What are you, what are you doing? Who do you think you are type stuff to me? So that was my, my Peyton Manning story where he belittled me very easily. I had Brandon Stokely on this show and he had mentioned some of the pranks that Peyton pulled and he is known by some players as someone that you kind of have to look over your shoulder with just because he might pull something. Was that the only thing that he did to wrong you in that sense? Did he pull pranks on the quarterbacks and get you again at some point during that season, even though he was hurt? Is there any other Peyton Manning tale that he might have done aside from that one? Yeah, that was the that was the one thing that you know like that he kind of really got me on. Um, there were some other little things here, like he had one point invited um, invited me to kind of go hang out with a group of guys or whatnot, and told me the address to show up, and then I showed up, and the door didn't have any handle on it from the outside, so I wasn't able to get in, um, which I think was a notorious reoccurring you know prank that he played on some guys. But the one, the meeting room one, was probably the best one with me. Is it safe to say that Colts fans should continue to give you free drinks in Indianapolis for that season, or have they forgotten a little bit already? <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all for that. You know, I, I, I have great interactions with Colts fans. I loved, I literally loved playing there. I loved living out there. It's such a good community of people. So my interaction with the people, whether on social media or if I'm ever in town, is always really cool. So um, I, I'm, I'm taking a free glass of wine whenever I can. Excellent. Or I guess at this point, since he's built his Heartland brand, you can mention playing with Pat McAfee, and that might be able to get you some pull as well if, if he's at a show or something. So there should that always guy, be one. Yeah, that guy, he's going to be governor at some point. <laughs> Got to be. So on your Twitter bio, people probably get this reference as well. You have on there that end zone should be 11 yards, referring to an unfortunate moment when you ran out of the end zone and caused the safety during one of the games with the Detroit Lions, which for whatever reason continues to get played and will in a way always keep you in the sports realm of the National Football League to spin it as a positive in a sense. What I find interesting about that play or that game is the play call, as you've spoken about before, was basically just to throw it to Calvin Johnson, which 
in a sense, isn't that bad of a call. But depending on the situation, it doesn't always work. So you called a timeout. You didn't want to do that specific call. Coaching staff overruled that, and the rest is history. But the following week, you're at the four-yard line. This time, throw it to Calvin Johnson and end up throwing a 96-yard touchdown pass. Was that a different play call? Could you have run that in the previous game and saved ourselves from that? How did those two plays coincide each other if they did, and do you wish that the second one happened first? Yeah, no, the first play call was a little bit different. You know, it was just a one-man – the safety was just a one-man route, and this was like my first start ever. Um, we This was like our third series of the game. We were backed up loud play so I was like God you know the play call came in and I was like coach I'd really like like more options you know the opportunity just to get the ball I mean I feel like they're gonna give me an easy completion and we can get the ball out of my hands and punt and they're like no we'll, we'll get this one to Calvin we we double blocked we double teamed Jared Allen or at least attempted to it didn't work out and the rest is history the following week was in a way another unique moment because Calvin and I had been begging for that play call for the first two and a half. I don't know exactly when it happened in the game, maybe early fourth quarter, two and a half, three quarters of the game. We were begging for that play call. We kept saying, we, we have to get this play. We have to get this play. Finally, we were, I think we were starting a drive and um, we were on the sidelines and our coach was like, let's start with this. And I think he wanted to start with just like a generic run. And I had kind of like gotten frustrated a little bit. And I was like, well, we, will we just please call this play it's a touchdown you know and both calvin and i were like why are we making this so hard again and uh, our coach finally gave in and and called the play and honestly once i broke the huddle and i saw the defense i was pretty pretty sure that it was going to be a touchdown and it worked out calvin ran right by the guy so it was an easy throw can we also just take a second to mention how terrifying it has to be, and you've experienced this firsthand, to have Jared Allen running at you full speed? I, I would run out of the back of the end zone and out of the stadium myself. So You know, it's, it's funny. I actually got contacted by a guy who I think owns a clothing company called the Detroit Line, and he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, if I, make, I think he makes these custom kind of unique fad shirts to do with Detroit. And he's like, if I make a t-shirt, you know, of you kind of running out of the end zone, you know, and sell them, what would you want it to say? And I was like, you know, put something like you would have ran out of the out of bounds too, you know? So just, uh, it's a little bit of a play on, I'm, I'm a person who can laugh at it now. It happened such a long time ago. I don't, I don't sweat talking about it too much or anything. I'm sure you get enough of those tell us those story type moments when you meet fans where they want to know about those three or four specific instances or what it was like to be on the team with X player. But I'm interested to know for you personally, the experience that you were able to have in 12 years in the National Football League, playing under so many coaches and playing for five different teams and the journey that you were able to have, Eventually, you'll get to the point where your four children will get to experience a sit down with you and have a better mindset of what it meant to play in the NFL, what your career meant. And I'm just interested to know what you might tell them as to how you would want to be remembered as an NFL player. Yeah, I would want them if they if they wanted to know that about me, I would say I would give them a list of all my teammates and say, I want you to talk to them. You know, my teammates were always 
the most important people, you know, outside of my wife and my children, the most important people to me. You know, I was a guy that I loved the locker room. I loved it. And a lot of guys do, but I loved it. I loved the, the friendships I made. It is, you know, that was my greatest joy was being teammates with some guys that have become, you know, some of my greatest friends, you know, but I would love to be known as a guy who I had, surely I was born with some talent. Absolutely. That played a part, but I would love to be known as a guy who worked really, really hard and uh, played and, you know, came to work every day and did the right things and did it with integrity and uh, gave of himself to other people, was a phenomenal teammate and um, just really enjoyed not what the NFL gave him, but being a part of that, that privilege, being, you know, enjoying that privilege of being in the NFL and making sure that, you know, my teammates, you know, felt that they were valued to me and whatnot. So just a hard, you know, to be honest, you not all that different than what a lot of people want to be remembered as, you know, I just wanted to be a hardworking dude, really good teammate, you know, loved, had a ton of fun, was a blast to be around and truly, um, respected the game and gave everything he had to it. In the short time that you've been retired, would you say that that's what you've missed the most so far, the teammate aspect of the sport and what goes on in the locker room, not necessarily the X's and O's part of it? Yeah, I don't miss playing football. I don't. Um, I was always the person who said when I felt uh, out of love with the grind, I wanted to be done because I'm a little bit of a, a old soul and I didn't want to cheat football. I didn't want to cheat what football was because it's so pure. I'd missed the, the camaraderie. Absolutely. You know, one, I'm a little bit fortunate because I've, I've got four kids. And so they keep me really busy. My wife's awesome. So, she, you know, I love hanging out with her. Um, I live 10 minutes from a guy that I played with and is a very good friend of mine. And Chris Myers, who played center for the Houston Texans for a long time. And I really haven't taken much time to, to sit back and do nothing. You know, I'm, I'm very much in the transition phase of what's next and I'm not wasting any time. So I've been busy. So, you know, I haven't had a ton of idle time in, in a sense. Um, and I'm still very connected to the game. So I'll always, I'll always miss football and I'll always miss the locker room and I'm never going to find anything to replace it. And I don't want to, because that's what made it so special for me. And to wrap up here, you mentioned that transition and you've now become somewhat of a fixture in the sports media side of things, whether it's radio hits talking about the NFL draft and some of the different quarterbacks we might see. I mentioned before that you've been writing for The Athletic as well. How has that transition been for you? Has it I don't want to say become an, an easy one, but have you found yourself enjoying this and getting used to it and, and being able to sort of gel with what's expected to move into the media side of things? Yeah. You know, I've, I've absolutely fallen in love with it and I didn't know if I would or not. And over the past couple of months, seven, eight months I have, you know, has it been an easy transition in a way? Yes. You know, the first two weeks for me were difficult because I had known nothing but football, but after that I really, really enjoyed being home and time with my family. And then, you know, the challenge of reinventing myself and, you know, starting over in a way. And so I've really enjoyed that. And I'm not saying that it's been an easy transition, like, oh, you know, this guy's going to know it all. But what I've realized is everything that I went through as a backup and all, how I had to go do my job has 
infinitely prepared me for this next step and to get into the media and broadcast and commentator analyst world. And um, and then this sounds incredibly braggish or braggadocious, but I'm more prepared for this than a lot of other people are because the role that I had, because my role as a backup was to intake and communicate and intake and communicate. And that's what broadcasting is. So I'm really excited for it. It's been a fun transition to go through. It's been busy, which has been fun. You realize that there's just not a lot of people on the planet like you and, and having the skills that you do. So I'm really excited to kind of continue to take the next steps. And, you know, my mind is to totally, you know, to be honest with you, just get great at it and kind of take over and be, you know, kind of this new wave of analysts, you know, Tony Romo type guys that really pull people into the game deeper because there's just, again, not a lot of people who can. And folks can find that analysis as well on your backup plan podcast, which has been incredible as well with the stories that you're able to tell, not only from your playing days, but what people can expect to see in the NFL currently. So I guess what you're saying is if Vince McMahon in the XFL or, say, Steve Spurrier in the AAF come calling for a quarterback, you're done. You're not going to do that stuff. <laughs> no. no, no one wants that. I mean, I was playing tag with my kids about two weeks ago when one of my kids put his foot in the ground and crossed over in front of my face, and I tried to tag him, and it, it was it was not a good result. So no, I've got no desire. I don't even want to throw anything. So um, I'm, like, I'm liking – you know, playing with my kids and coaching them and, and kind of moving into the next step for sure. Perfect. Taking it easy on the sidelines and maybe getting into the video game world with them instead of the real world. Yeah. I guess I would be remiss if for the last question I didn't ask you about this NFL draft with the quarterbacks names that are getting thrown around. It, it seems daily and it seems like the draft order and list of where guys are going to be taken changes every couple minutes or so and that of course won't stop until the actual draft happens but out of the string of quarterbacks that have been talked about whether they go high or how far will they fall is there a guy that stands out to you as I, I guess what you would say a favorite or someone that you think should be sought after out of the quarterbacks for the 2018 draft yeah I mean if I had to pick one I would pick Sam Darnold you know, and my reason is this, if I'm a team and I'm picking early in the draft, especially the first pick, I better be picking a guy that's going to change my franchise. And if you're looking at it from the quarterback position, when it comes to doing that, to change my franchise, you've got to have things that I can't coach. And Sam Darnold has three traits that I can't coach. He's got incredible this thing that I call magical sloppiness. Everything he does is a little bit sloppy. It's very Ben Roethlisberger, Tony Romo-esque. Sometimes that sloppiness leads to bad stuff for sure, but it leads to magic. And that's stuff you can't coach. There's no quarterback coach in the NFL that has drills for that. The second thing, he can judge the angles and speeds of how his guys run their routes. And that's a big deal in the NFL because windows happen smaller. They They shrink faster. There's timing is paramount and you've got to be able to throw with anticipation to be really good in the NFL. And this third thing is he's super accurate with bad feet. And that's important again, because I know what NFL pockets are like and they're not perfect. They're rarely perfect. And so to be able to be accurate without perfect feet, is huge because that's functional for me in the NFL world. And then when you're looking at it, you want to find again, 
things that they do that you can't coach. It's going to make them special. And then you've got to find the things that they do bad and ask yourself, is there medicine for it? You know, is there medicine for that work that they have? That's going to, cause that's going to be the number one thing that can hold them back from being that game changing franchise changing player. And the thing that I see with Darnold is, well, okay. He's got some turnovers. The fumbles aren't a big deal. You fix fumbles that he's only going to get stronger. And you can, there's drills that coaches have to get you to, to, to protect the ball better, value the ball better in the pocket. And so, you know, with the interceptions, you know, Matt Ryan had 19 coming out of college. Drew, Drew Brees at 12, Roma at 16, Russell Wilson at 14. Like you have, you've got to understand why these picks are happening. And so there's ways you can minimize picks by the plays you call and the routes you're asked to be thrown and whatnot. So for me, the downside to Darnold, I look at it and go, okay, I can clean that up. I can refine that and make it better. And the, the things that he does well or the traits that he has that separate him, I can't coach. Yeah, I think you made a good call going into the broadcasting world, Dan. I do have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on to the show to chat about some of what you were able to do in 12 years in the NFL and some of what you did now. I had a great feeling that the stories would definitely be worthwhile and they didn't disappoint. So I do appreciate you taking some time out of another busy time of your career to chat about some of the things you've been up to. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, man. Anytime. It was, it was as much fun for me. Thanks again to Dan Orlovsky for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, so he holds the reins here, but don't worry. There aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down A Quiet Place, which Rotten Tomatoes describes in the modern horror thriller. A family of four must navigate their lives in silence after mysterious creatures that hunt by sound threaten their survival. If they hear you, they hunt you. You can find Joe on Twitter at DukeMish, that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupof-joe.com. Again, that's cupof-joe or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. John Krasinski stars in and takes a seat in the director's chair for A Quiet Place. Trailers looked awesome and phenomenal. Reviews catapulted it to the top of the box office with a stellar $50 million opening. There was no doubt this movie would be good. The question was, would I, the easily frightened moviegoer, be able to handle the scares. Let's go to the tape. The movie throws the audience into a world where creatures who hunt using sound have not taken over the world but are well on their way to doing so. Therefore, the humans are forced to make as little noise as possible to avoid detection. Krasinski makes his movie tick as the acting all the way around is incredible, starting with Krasinski. 
He obviously has great chemistry with his real-life wife, Emily Blunt, and it is that realism within the characters that help drive the film, starting with their non-verbal communication. Actors are on another level when they could tell you what they're feeling by simply showing you their faces. Krasinski and Blunt are able to portray what parents would have to be in a post-apocalyptic world. Krasinski and Blunt are strong for their children, but deep down they are afraid. Afraid they won't be able to protect the ones they love. Afraid they themselves will die, because obviously they weren't made for this world, but they have to adapt or die. They're able to convey all of that information with just their faces. It's a 90-minute movie, so building characters in this way is paramount. And I'm really happy this movie was 90 minutes. There's only so much time an audience can sit on the edge of their seats before they fall over from the tension. Also, this movie puts the audience right into the action. We don't need to know all the details. We just need the essential details. Quiet Place doesn't get bogged down in explaining everything. That's not the point of the movie. Well, I think it has two points. But let's start with the obvious one. Quiet Place builds tension, providing one of the most unique movie-going experiences I've ever had. The movie is very, well, quiet. There's a lot of sign language, subtitles, and whispering. You could hear a pin drop and definitely your friend's ESPN alert. We were collectively holding our breath, thinking that if we made noise, the people in the movie, or even us, would be attacked by the mysterious creatures. The movie does a nice job of showing you things that you store in the back of your mind that you know you should be afraid of happening, or something you know is going to happen that you dread until it does. So it perfectly builds that thrilling movie theater experience, and that's how I would actually classify this film. It's a thriller. Yes, there are scares, but it's not a haunt-your-dreams type of horror which are the kind that I like to avoid. I'm more afraid of the supernatural horror movie than horror that involves creatures, because I feel I have an opportunity to defend myself. That is my weird logic, so I say if you're not a horror movie fan like myself, you could still go see it and greatly enjoy it as I did. The second and more surprising point of A Quiet Place is to show the family dynamic in a post-apocalyptic world. It gives you members of the family with different personalities we could all relate to. There's something that happens early in the movie that creates a tension between Krasinski and his daughter, portrayed perfectly by Millicent Simmons. This relationship serves as the heart of the film, and it's really beautiful how it all comes together. And Emily Blunt is a boss in this movie. Obviously her acting is great, but her character is a boss. The bottom line, A Quiet Place gives you the thrills promised from the trailers, expert visual storytelling, and a heartfelt family dynamic. A Quiet Place will be one of the best movies of the year. I'll compare A Quiet Place to Barry Sanders. Maybe the greatest running back to ever play the game, Sanders dominated the league with highlight reel runs, but he kept silent, never showboated, and simply handed the ball to the ref after he scored a touchdown. Knowing his excellence on the field would tell the story. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, 
keeping you connected with all things sports.